Revelation 1 is page 686 in the Bibles the fellows are handing out. Most of us here that are over 40 have had the experience of visiting a playground or a schoolyard or a ball field that's the same or similar to one where we played as a kid. When you were a kid, that slide on that playground seemed so tall. And the fence in that outfield where you played Little League seemed so far away. And the kid on the mound pitching to you seemed to throw that ball so fast. And now you return to watch kids play in a similar fashion. And if you're like me, the first time or two, you're taken aback at how small everything is. How slow it all seems to move. Because the truth is, as we grow physically, what we thought was large now seems small to us. Many of us have had the same sensation when we look at old pictures of ourselves. And we thought we were overweight then. But the more we've grown, the better those pictures look. As we grow physically, what we thought was large now seems small to us. Many of us are familiar with C.S. Lewis. He wrote a number of books, but he wrote a series of children's books called The Chronicles of Narnia. The Chronicles are a fantasy in which a group of school children step into the land of Narnia while they're playing hide-and-seek. And in the Chronicles of Narnia, Lewis wove into the storyline a number of symbols of Christian truth. One of the key figures in the story is a lion named Aslan, who's a figure of Christ. And in one episode, a child who had known Aslan in the past sees him again, and it goes like this. She, the child, peered into the large, wise face of Aslan the lion. And he said, welcome, child. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. Well, that's because you're older, little one. And she said, not because you are. And he said, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Because you see, as we grow spiritually, Jesus Christ becomes larger. He becomes bigger to us. The more we know of him and the more we know about him, the more significant he becomes to us. And today we begin a series in Scripture about who Jesus Christ is. Why do we need to know who Jesus Christ is? Well, for one, Christ is central to the faith that we profess called, after all, Christianity, Christianity. We need to know who Jesus Christ is because being like him is our eternal purpose, isn't it? And that's why the scriptures tell us. That those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to whom? To the likeness of his son. We need to know who Jesus Christ is because our personal sin struggles are at bottom failure to be like him. I found over the years that many people come to church on the Lord's Day and they hear or tolerate very often the preaching, the message. But they really don't think it applies to them. If it's really going to apply to them, I need a personal session. Now, don't get me wrong. There are times for personal sessions. I do personal counseling. 
And God has used that ministry in the lives of people. But I think many of us miss the fact that what we are doing right now and every week when we come together and we look into the pages of Scripture and we see who God is, particularly in the person of Jesus Christ, we are seeing what we are to aspire to be. And we should see that our own personal sin failures are because we have failed to be like him. And so we need to know who Jesus Christ is. He's the center of our faith. He's the one whose character we are to emulate. Failure to do so is at the very heart of our personal sin struggles. And that's why Jesus is the central figure then in your Bible. The Bible is centered on Jesus. Genesis chapter 3, God made a promise at the very beginning of your Bible that was fulfilled in Jesus. God said, I, God, will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And so in the very beginning of your Bible, Jesus is promised. And then at the very end of your Bible, Jesus is exalted. And that's why I had you turn to Revelation chapter 1. Notice verse 1. The very last book of your Bible says this is the revelation, the making known of Jesus Christ. In the beginning, Jesus was promised. In the end, Jesus is exalted. And in between, he is made known to us by his having come to earth and the giving of the pages of Holy Scripture that tell us about who he is. Now, just take a minute and notice in the opening chapters of that last book of your Bible, if you have a red letter edition of the Bible, which most of you do because some publisher came up with that idea a long time ago. And the red letters are the words that Jesus speaks directly. And you notice in the opening chapters of the book of Revelation, chapters one through three, you'll find a number of red letters because... Jesus is being made known. Jesus is talking directly here at the end of human history. And if you were to fan the beginning of your Bible, what we call the Old Testament, you would find it's all black letters, no red letters, because Christ has not come to his mission on earth as yet. But if you just take your Bible and you just fan it back a bit, just casually, go back from Revelation toward the middle, you'll find this section that's just full of red letters. And that's a section of your Bible that we call the Gospels. You'll find those red letters there, direct quotations from Jesus, because the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of your New Testament, record the life and times of Jesus, having come as the fulfillment of the promise in Genesis 3.15. So the entire Bible is about Jesus. It's centered literally on Jesus. And in these four books called the Gospels, you constantly have Jesus' contemporaries in awe of him. And they ask the question, who is this? And so on Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem to begin the events that would lead to his crucifixion, the people turned to one another and they asked, who is this? And one day his disciples were with him in a boat and he stepped forward to the bow of the boat and he spoke to the winds that were causing waves to crash upon the boat. And suddenly those winds stopped and the waves became still. And notice, you notice what the disciples did? They didn't say, let's sell tickets because this guy can do magic tricks. 
The Bible says they were sore afraid in the King James. Because they knew that they were in the presence of someone wholly different from them. And they asked the question, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And even his detractors asked who he was. Herod, who had beheaded John the Baptist because of the Baptist's mighty preaching, he heard about another mighty preacher and he associated him with John. And Herod asked, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? On one occasion, the Lord Jesus Christ healed a paralytic man whose condition had come upon him as a God's judgment because of this man's spiritual sin. And when Jesus healed him, he looked him in the eye and he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders who were watching this whole episode said this, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Throughout his life, men asked, Who is this one called Jesus? And on a mountain retreat, according to Matthew 16 in your Bible, our Lord gathered his little band of 12 followers together and he himself posed the question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And after hearing their polite responses, Jesus asked, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And that's the question before all of us as we begin a study of the person of Jesus. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? The answer to that question has implications for time and for eternity. If he's only a man, then you can afford to forget about him. But if he is, as we will see, the Son of God, God in the flesh, then we ignore him at our peril. If he is who he says he is, then he demands our belief. He demands our total devotion and our total allegiance. Over the next several months, we're going to study who Jesus is from one of those four books that have all of those red letters in the front of your New Testament, the book of John. And I invite you to turn to the very end of that book, the Gospel of John, chapter 20. It's page 601 in the Bibles. The fellow's passed out. Who's John? John was one of Jesus' first followers, and he wrote this book in the latter portion of his, John's life. He wrote it after a period of time where he reflected upon the life of Christ and upon the significance of of Jesus' life. And when John took pen in hand to write his account, he did not intend to give us a chronological or a biographical view of the life of Christ. Instead, John selected the material from a vast storehouse of personal experience that he had with Jesus, and he structured that material to fulfill a very specific purpose. The book of John records seven miracles of Christ. But John doesn't call them miracles. Unlike the other three accounts of Jesus' life from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John calls these miracles signs. These signs are an event in the physical realm that points our attention to a spiritual truth. 
And then John includes seven great teaching opportunities in the material that's in the Gospel of John. Seven great discourses of the Lord Jesus Christ that develop the truths that those seven signs point to. And he devotes half of the book to the last few days of Jesus' life. The events surrounding his death and his resurrection. His resurrection being the greatest sign of all. And then after discussing all of these signs and what they mean, at the end of the book, he tells us the purpose for which he gave us all of this material. Notice verses 30 and 31 of John chapter 20. John writes, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Now, John has just recorded seven signs plus the resurrection. And then he says, verse 31, but these are written. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. It is my hope, friends, it is my prayer. That as we see who Jesus is, that those of us who profess him as Savior and Lord will see him as bigger and larger and more significant than ever before. And that those who do not know him will come to believe in him and by believing have life in his name. And so I invite you to a study of the Gospel of John where we will meet the Son of God. We will, in the pages of this book, meet our Maker. And so we look at chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, page 587. Chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now notice the unusual name that John applies to Jesus Christ, the Word Many of you know the Greek word that's translated word there is logos, the logos. And we know that it's a reference to Jesus Christ because John makes it clear a little bit further down. Notice verse 14 of chapter 1. The word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the father, full of grace and truth. But who is this one that's full of grace and truth? Notice verse 17. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word. The Word became flesh. The Word was full of grace and truth. It is Jesus Christ who is full of grace and truth. The Word is Jesus Christ. That word logos is very significant in Greek. What does it mean and why does John choose to use it here? The term logos resonated with importance, with significance for all readers who would read John's account of the life of Jesus Christ. Because nearly 500 years before the appearance of Jesus Christ in a manger in Bethlehem, there was a Greek philosopher named Heraclitus. And Heraclitus said that you can set your foot in a river and take it out, but you can never put your foot back into the same river. And his point was that the river is flowing and it's changing, so you could never step into the same water twice. 
Now, how do I know this? Because I've seen the Pocahontas movie with my girls. And there's actually a song in that movie with those lyrics to it. Just around the river bend. You ought to take a listen. And that was John's way, or or excuse me, the philosopher's way of saying that everything is in a state of change. And then that in turn led him to think about the question, well, then why isn't everything in chaos? Why do we seem to see order and structure in the universe? And he concluded that there must be some divine order, some divine structure. And this divine order or structure he called the Lagos. For this philosopher, the Lagos became nothing less than the mind of a God who controlled the world and the realm of men. And these ideas of this philosopher 500 years before the time of Jesus became so pervasive in the Greek world that all philosophers for centuries talked about those ideas. Plato and Socrates and others discussed the idea of the Logos as the structure and the order of things. They discussed it much like unbelievers today discuss the hypothesis of evolution. Virtually everyone had heard of this philosopher and his views of the Logos. This word came then to be equated with the controlling power of the universe that gave reason and sense to everything. This term used in John's gospel would have piqued the interest of the Greek readers. It would have created curiosity. It would have created a sympathetic vibration among the deep questions of philosophy. But though this term would have drawn them into further discussion of what John meant, Our understanding of what John meant is not to be found in Greek philosophy. It was a significant term for them, but the meaning is to be found in the theology of God's people, the Jews, given to us in the first part of your Bible that we call the Old Testament. Because the concept of the word was used in the Old Testament in two very distinct ways. First, it was used to describe the creative power of God. In the very beginning, God stood in the nothingness that that was all that existed, and he spoke. And the scripture said, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. The psalmist described that same act with these words. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made. Their starry host by the breath of his mouth. God spoke his word and all creation came from nothing. God said through the prophet Isaiah, my word that goes out from my mouth, it will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I desire and it will achieve the purpose for which I sent it. His word is his creative power that accomplishes his will. But not only in the Old Testament do we find this word, the word, used to describe the creative power of God, but it was also used of a prophetic message from God, divine communication from God. Most of you know that in the days before the completion of your Bible, when God communicated to people, he would raise up an individual known as a prophet. And over and over again, we read statements like the word of the Lord would come to one of these prophets. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah. And Isaiah, for instance, would speak the very words of God. It was God's self-disclosure, God's communication. That's the significance of this word. 
And now we come to the point where God wants to give us his communication par excellence. His greatest self-disclosure. And John calls the person who revealed God the living word. As opposed to the written or spoken word. And that's why in Hebrews chapter 1, the Bible says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Jesus Christ, the Logos of God, is God's final word. The supreme communication from God, whereby God has made himself known to us. In this passage, John is telling us the truth that I have for you on the back of your program. That Jesus, then, is uniquely qualified to make God known to us. Now, friends, do you see that this fact speaks to our deepest need? We need to know God. And God says, I am known through Jesus. Who can know God? In verse 18 of John chapter 1, it says that no one has seen God at any time. Who can know God? In fact, one of Job's foul friends said to him, Can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? God cannot be known unless God chooses to reveal himself, to make himself known. Then Jesus came. The Logos of God, the sustaining power of all the universe, God's communication to us. These opening verses of John give us three reasons that I can cover in our remaining time. And we have them for you in the outline that's on the back of your program. Three reasons that Jesus is qualified to reveal God to us. Here's the first one. It's because Jesus is eternal. Notice the opening words of our study of John. In the beginning was the word, John 1.1. The readers of John 1.1 were immediately drawn to the opening words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And to drive home the point of the analogy that John's making, he says in verse 3 of chapter 1, through him all things were made, speaking of creation. And in this verse, John adds truth upon truth. He says, in the beginning was the word. He's not telling us that in the beginning, Jesus was the first created being. He uses a particular tense in Greek to point out that in the beginning, Jesus already was. At the moment that the cosmic time clock ticked the first second of the history of creation, Jesus Christ already was, and he was continuing from eternity past. It's a statement of Jesus' pre-existence. Sometimes we think of the coming of Jesus, born as a babe in Bethlehem about 2,000 years ago. We think of that as his coming into existence. You've heard me say before, Jesus did not come into existence at his birth in Bethlehem. It was not the beginning of his existence. It was the beginning of his mission. 
He has always existed pre-existence. But John summons us to peer into the depths of eternity past. And our minds look backward until time disappears and our thoughts collapse in exhaustion. And this is where we must begin, pointing our thoughts to the greatness of who, of who Jesus Christ is, a greatness that simply cannot be fully plumbed. Here's where we must begin if we're to see Jesus as the Logos who perfectly reveals, makes known God to us. Friends, we can know of God. But God is so utterly different from us, we as mere created beings cannot alone reason to a full understanding of God. But Jesus Christ is no mere created being. In the beginning, He already existed, and therefore, He is the one who's qualified to reveal God to us, to make God known to us. Here's a second reason that Jesus is qualified to make God known to us. It's because he has an intimate relationship with God the Father. Notice again verse 1 of chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and notice the next phrase, and the Word was with God. John selected a term to describe Christ's presence with God that speaks of an intimate, personal relationship. He was with God. You know, you can hardly find anyone today that doesn't say, I believe there's a God, right? But we have to ask the question, what God do you believe in? Do you believe in the cosmic energy, sometimes called the force, an impersonal God? Because the Bible is absolutely clear that the true and living God is not an impersonal force. He is a person. And God the Son had an intimate relationship with God the Father as persons. We see that in the opening words here. Jesus Christ was with God in a personal relationship. Not only does this phrase speak of personality, but also of the intimacy of that relationship. Christ was face to face toward God in the closest possible relationship. I thank God. That I have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. As does everyone who is seated here, who has committed their lives to God through Christ. But the truth is, no one can know God as does Jesus Christ. I delight to be able to explore the depths of God's greatness and His goodness in the pages of Scripture. But one of the delights of eternity will be that through endless ages we'll learn more and more of the depth of the character of our God and we will never exhaust that knowledge. No one will ever, no one can and no one ever will know God as does Jesus Christ. That's why the Scriptures say in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9 in your Bible, in Him, in Jesus dwells all the fullness of God in bodily form. There's an intimate relationship between the Son and the Father from eternity past. He was with God. And notice, by the way, verse 2 adds this, He was with God in the beginning. That's not just mere repetition. The way John words this, he's stressing the fact that just as Jesus Christ was preexistent in the beginning, He experienced this intimate personal relationship in an ongoing way, on an ongoing basis, by the time that the beginning came. 
And so from eternity past, he had this intimate, personal relationship with God, which continued at creation and continues to this very moment and will continue into eternity. There's a third reason that Jesus is uniquely qualified to make God known to us. And it's simply this. He is God. I'm amazed at how many people that have been in church for many years are surprised at that. You say, really, he's God? I mean, I knew he was the son of God. But God? But John could not be clearer, could he? In the beginning was the word. And who's the word? Jesus Christ. And the word was with God. And the word was God. There are at least eight clear declarations in the New Testament that Jesus Christ is God. And here in John chapter 1 and verse 1, we have the foundation of every one of them. John is not teaching that there were multiple gods and that Jesus is a God and the Father is a God. You all remember that the most famous statement of orthodoxy, right belief in your Old Testament, is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. The Bible teaches that this one God eternally exists in three persons, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. You say, man, I cannot figure that out. Well, welcome to the club. Let me just say a few words about that. We're almost done. You say, I can't figure that out. That bothers me that I can't figure it out. Hey, listen. Unless you're the creator, there's lots of stuff you can't figure out. So you might as well just give it up on being able to figure it all out. I mean, consider. There was someone, or just for the sake of argument, there was something at the beginning before you and I ever came into existence, right? And then you ask the question, where did that someone or that something come from? And you're stuck. But not only are you stuck, so is everybody else. So is your scientist friend who says, you can't tell me where God came from and belittles you. And you respond, you can't tell me where the gases that formed the Big Bang came from. And you can belittle him. Because everybody has to start somewhere. And because of that, there are always going to be things you can't figure out. And just by the way, the minute you can figure God out completely, guess who you become? And so it should not surprise us and it should not bother us that the true and living God is a God who has revealed himself truly, but we can never know fully because he is God. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, friends, Satan would love nothing more than to have you believe that Jesus Christ was a great man and a great teacher. Even a divine being of some sort, but one that is subpar with God. But hear this, if he is not God, he is nothing. In the words of C.S. Lewis, if he is not God, he is either a lunatic or a liar. 
If he is not God, he is not good because he claimed to be God. If he is not God, he is not truthful. He's a liar because he said he was God. So you cannot have it both ways. And that's why Lewis said he is either a lunatic or a liar or he is your Lord before whom we all must bow. If you're going to know God today, then, you must see him in Jesus Christ and trust in Christ today. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And so in Jesus Christ dwells all the wisdom and all of the glory and all the power and all the love and all the holiness and all the justice and goodness and all the truth of God the Father. If you look to Him, you will know God and Him alone. And at the end of virtually every service we have, we offer you opportunity then to do that. We're going to bow and pray in just a moment. But as we do, we offer you opportunity to know God through the one He has sent to make God known, Jesus Christ. How do you do that? You realize who you are. You realize you're a a sinner. And you realize that this one, the Creator, your Maker, Jesus Christ, came as man to accomplish a mission. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins and mine. And then you repent of your sins. What's that mean? Repent means you say, God, I want to go your way, not my way. I'm committing my life to you. And then you receive Jesus Christ into your life. And you do that. When we bow, you pray from your heart to God in your own words. A prayer like this. And you can know God through Jesus Christ. Those of you who do know God through Jesus Christ, as we bow, let's thank God for giving us Jesus. Let's thank God for giving us his word. And let's ask God to help us know him better in the weeks ahead so that he becomes larger and more significant to us in our lives. Let's bow together. Father, we come before you humbled by the lofty truth that we have seen in the pages of your word, penned by your servant, the great Apostle John. Lord God, we thank you for these words. We thank you for the care with which your servant penned them so that he could explain these deep truths concisely and clearly. Lord, our finite, limited minds cannot grasp all that is involved in who you are and in the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But Lord, we recognize that we are but creatures and you are the Creator. And we submit ourselves then to your truth, to your word. And we thank you for providing it for us. And we thank you for what you've accomplished through Jesus Christ. Securing our salvation on the cross. Living a perfect life of righteousness so that when we come to you through him, you see us through the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Lord, thank you for doing that for me. Thank you for the difference that that's made in my life. Thank you for the difference it's made in the lives of my brothers and sisters here. And I pray that right now in this sacred moment that there are people who are receiving Jesus Christ as their Savior. That they are bowing their hearts and their lives before Him as their Lord. That they are seeing Him for the first time for who He truly is, their Maker, and they are meeting their Maker. I pray, Lord, that they, as we then, would give our lives for the purpose for which you made us, 
to reflect your image, to bring you glory, to be conformed to your son. Lord, we pray that you'll be glorified in us. It's in Christ's name we pray.